John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we'll read our text here in just a, a bit. Um, glad you're here today as we talk about the Christmas story. Now, most people, when they talk about Christmas, they go to one of two places in the Bible. They go to either the Gospel of Matthew or they go to the Gospel of Luke. Those are the two kind of go-to passages when we talk about uh, Christmas. But today I want to show you the Christmas story out of the Gospel of John. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but John gives us the Christmas story. And, um, and it's about something we sang about earlier here in this service, and that is uh, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, God leaving heaven and God coming uh, to earth. And I'll be honest with you, uh, while the other passages are more popular when it comes to Christmas, the fact is the passage we're going to read today may be the most theologically important when it comes to Christmas. So I want to show you some things about that. Some of you may know the name Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott and some of his associates in 1956 uh, uh, gave their lives trying to reach the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And uh, Jim Elliott was a very uh, a godly man. He believed that God had sent him down to reach this cannibalistic tribe of people, the Akas, and they were known to be a very hostile people. And uh, so they went down to Ecuador to reach these Indians. They set up camp not far from where these Indian, this Indian tribe uh, of people were. And uh, shortly after they'd sent up their camp, they were murdered by these, um, these fierce people, the Aka Indians. And um, they, in fact, not only were they they murdered Jim Elliott and the other missionaries didn't even put up a fight. They didn't feel like they could represent Christ by fighting to defend themselves. And, uh, and so they gave their lives up. By the way, just a footnote to the story. Eventually, Jim Elliott's uh, sons and his wife, and they were able to reach these people with the gospel. And the man who actually killed Jim Elliott um, was actually converted to Christ by Elliot's own family. Later on, this whole uh, group of people, this tribal people, came to know Christ uh, and still do today because of their sacrifice, really. Um, and when they, were, when they were murdered like this, the, the news went through all the world that, uh, that they had been attacked and they'd been, uh, their lives had been uh, sacrificed uh, in an attempt to reach these uh, people. And Jim Elliott, they found his journal, and he had written something very profound. And when I say it, you may say, oh, I've heard that before. I didn't realize that's where that came from. But something he put in his journal that spread all over the world, at least in, in uh, Christian circles, was this phrase. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He wrote that in his 20s, shortly before he went to try to reach uh, these people. You know, in a very real sense, what Jim Elliott and these other missionaries uh, did was display the Christmas story. They were living in the spirit of Christmas, you might say, because they were willing to give up the comforts of their home and the promise of great careers to ultimately lay down their life for the sake of the gospel in order to reach people who had never heard uh, the story of Christ. They could have fought back to defend themselves. They chose not to. And that's what Jesus did for us when he came into this world. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came into the world, he was doing the very same thing. It's the reason Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. You see, the fact is nothing of lasting significance and importance for God is ever accomplished without great sacrifice. And that's the Christmas message, that God sacrificed the, uh, uh, his position in heaven at the right hand of the Father to come into the world in order that we might be saved and that we might uh, understand who he is and how much he loves us. And it's the message of John in this text that we're looking at this morning. So if you're physically able to do so, I invite you to stand as we read this passage, verses 1 through 5. This is what the scripture says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, thank you for the words of John the words of Scripture. Thank you for the living Word, Christ Himself, who came into the world that we might have life, that to be the light of the world. And I pray this morning, God, that your light will shine in our hearts. I pray this morning, God, for those who are watching and those who are here live, Father, they'll understand if they've never trusted you, just who you are and how important what you did for us is. Speak to us now from your word, Father. We are listening to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. Now, the passage that we just read is one of the most theologically profound passages in all of Scripture. I mean, it's one of the most significant passages, theologically speaking, that we can read. John's declaration is about how God reached down to man as the Logos. Now, in your Bible there, when you see in this passage the word, word, W-O-R-D, and it's capitalized, have you noticed that? Because it's not referring to a word, it's referring to a person. And when you see the word there, the Greek word for word, <laughs> that gets really confusing, the Greek word for word, capital W-O-R-D, is the word logos. Now, you probably are smart enough to put together something, and that is our English word logo comes from logos. Now, you know what a logo is, don't you? Everybody here know what a logo is? I mean, you may have on a certain kind of tennis shoe and it has a logo on the side of it. Or you, by the way, you can look on our worship folder and you'll see the triangle of our church logo. A logo is, is created to help us recognize or understand something. So if you look at a logo, you immediately associate it with a certain thing, right? I mean, so you look at the check on a Nike shoe and you know, you don't, some, they don't have to spell Nike across, you just say, that's a Nike. Or you look at the, the triangle on the worship folder and say, that represents Ridgecrest. So when the Bible uses this term, it, is, it has profound theological implications because here's what God is saying. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was God and the Logos was with God from the very beginning. And everything that was created was created by the Logos, the Word. It's referring to Christ himself. And so what he is saying is when you see Christ or when you come to understand Christ, guess what? You can understand who God is. He is the visible expression 
of the invisible God, all right? So when you see Christ, you go, oh, Christ defines God for us. One of the reasons Christ came into the world, he, well, he came in to, to do for us what we couldn't do. He, he died for our sins, and we couldn't be a sacrificial substitute for our sins because we're imperfect people. He came in, lived a perfect life, and offered a perfect sacrifice for our sins, okay? But he came into this world to help us be able to recognize God. See, prior to that, you know, there was the, the, there was the Godhead, the Trinity, but we had never seen God, Right? We'd seen expressions of God in miracles and expressions of God in all sorts of ways uh, in things that he had done throughout time past. But it's hard for us to really comprehend God, right? Because we just kind of, we don't, we haven't seen him. No man has seen God at any time, the Bible says. So God sent his son. And his son took on flesh just like the creation because you know what we can do well? We can relate to each other. If I see you or you see me, we can relate to that. And if, we're, if we hang around each other long enough, we can identify our character, right? We can d- determine how we are or what things we like. Okay, so God sends Jesus into the world so we can identify him, which is why later in the book of John, Jesus would say, he that has seen me has seen the Father. No man has seen God at any time, right? But Jesus said, but if you've seen me, you now know I'm the logo. I'm the logos. I give meaning. I'll help you understand who God is. So that's one of the reasons Jesus came is to help us. And we call that the incarnation. I heard about a lady who who waited uh, too late, really, to send out her Christmas cards. And by the way, thank you. If I don't get a chance to tell you personally, thank you. We have just received mounds of Christmas cards. Thank you so much. They bless us. Uh, but this lady waited too late uh, to send her Christmas cards out. And she got to making her list and thought, I need to do this real soon. And she had about 49 people on her list. She ran out to the store. She bought a, um, a package of 50 Christmas cards. She didn't even look at the message. She was in such a hurry. And she just kind of addressed them as quickly as she can. She put them in the mail and thought, another thing, checked off my Christmas list to do. And uh, one, uh, on Christmas Day, after things had kind of quietened down, she found the one remaining Christmas card that she had uh, that, uh, from the packet of 50. She'd sent 49 out. And so as she sat down and she started looking at that one card and she, she hadn't even read the message. And now she opens it up and she reads the message and much to her dismay, this is what the message inside her Christmas card that she sent to her 49 friends said. This card is just to say, a little gift is on the way. <laughs> 49 of them. Well, I want to tell you something. 2,000 years ago, that was the message of the angels to the shepherds. I'm here to declare, we're here to declare that a gift from God is on the way. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, for, uh, for he is God with you, and he will save his people from their sins. And so this morning, John is helping us understand this gift. And he does that by showing us three things. Let me give them to you. Number one, John shows us Jesus as the sovereign God. Jesus, the sovereign God. Verse one, it says, and the word was with God, but look at this, and the word was God. Now, The way John starts this actually links all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 1. You know Genesis 1 probably, and it says this, in the beginning, God. Well, uh, 
Uh, isn't it interesting that John describes Jesus the same way? He says, in the beginning was the Word. It's a reference back to that very beginning where the two are connected. Now, let me show you something. If we were to go back to Genesis 1, the word God in Genesis 1 is the word, uh, the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim in that passage is in the plural. Y'all with me? If it's in the plural, what does it mean? It doesn't mean God, it means plural. Gods. <gasps> no, he's not saying there are all kinds of gods out there. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when he goes to create man, we see it again. It says, let us create man in our image, the Trinity. So now, connect this back to the passage we just read. In the beginning was the Word. He's saying Jesus was there at the beginning. So when it says Elohim in the plural in Genesis, he's referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three parts of the Trinity, but one God. And what John is doing is he's reinforcing the idea that Jesus wasn't just a, a, a subservient to God. He was God. And he came into the world, the incarnation. And notice in your Bible that the word, word, is capitalized, right? When we do that, when you write your name, you don't write it with a, a, a small letter. You write it with a, the first letters capitalized. Why? It is to identify you, all right? So we know that it is a name for you when you capitalize the first letter. That's exactly what John's doing. He's saying, I'm not saying word. I'm saying the word, definite article. It is a, a, an expression of God. It is identifying Jesus as God. The the uh, invisible God is expressed in the visible Son of God. Michael Carbile uh, wrote this. He said, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty. Uh, it, it is to say he is the possessor of all power. He is sovereign in heaven and on earth so that no one can defeat his counsels and no one can undermine his purpose or resist his will. When we say God is sovereign, he writes, it is to declare that Christ is the governor among the nations, uh, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as he pleases and as it pleases him best. When we say that God is sovereign, it is to declare that he is the only potentate. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. That is, he is the God of the Bible, and he is Jesus, the sovereign God. That's what we mean when we say uh, he's sovereign. He is not uh, subservient to God. He is God. And the first verse in this passage that we read uh, uh, reminds us of who God is. And in the context of Christmas, it's essential because it tells us that our Savior was God. He wasn't just a, a symbol. He was God. Um, in fact, John does something. What he's really doing is he's going beyond just telling us that Christ was born. What he's telling us is who it was that was born. It's one thing to say Christ was born, but here's what John's trying to do emphatically. He's trying to say, Christ was born, but do you understand who he is? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was at the beginning with the Father and the Spirit. This isn't just some uh, representation. This is God come in the flesh for us. Now, through the ages, there have been 
been people that equate Jesus as merely a good man. Oh, he was just kind of the, an ambassador for God. He, he was a good man. Or he was a powerful teacher for God. And many say, but he wasn't God himself. That may sound good, and it may play well in our culture today, but all of those things fall short of the truth about Jesus. And John gives us the truth about Jesus in, in these verses. While Jesus cer- certainly represented God, listen, he was more than a representative. He represented God because he was God. And while Jesus was a powerful teacher about God and for God, the reason he was a powerful teacher about God and for God is because he was God. He was sovereign God. And through the ages, the use of this term sovereign has always been used to denote authority and a, a royal position. Rulers, uh, it means, who have had no superiors, that we call them sovereigns. They're, they're sorry, their throne is sovereign, we say. They, they have no superiors, or, or it, and oftentimes they have nobody to answer to. Now, an earthly sovereign can be good or bad, right? I mean, it depends on their character. Many earthly sovereigns, rulers, uh, kings through history have been imperfect and they've mishandled their position and their authority. But a perfect God has never mishandled his sovereign rule. You can be certain of this. God has never fumbled the ball. God has never oops, I missed on that one. He's a perfect sovereign ruler. So the sovereignty of Christ reflects a couple of things when we read this passage, especially as it relates to Christmas. Let me give them to you. The first thing it reflects is that Christ willingly came. He sovereignly determined that he would come into this world. That means he wasn't coerced. He wasn't forced. He willingly came. In fact, listen to how Paul said it in Philippians 2. He said, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That is a powerful passage. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying God did something that no other sovereign has done. He left the throne in the form of Jesus and he took on flesh. And he came into this world, and he did so willingly by sovereign choice. He wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't persuaded to. And by the way, this was part of God's sovereign plan. And when we also say uh, uh, God is sovereign, it means this, that he doesn't have to explain himself. God doesn't have to explain himself. You know, we hear people in our world today that say something, well, God needs to, if God, uh, God needs to explain himself or God needs to answer for this or why this or why this, I want to tell you something. You, if that's who you are and that's what you feel, you get that out of your system right now because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, sovereign to the glory of God the Father. There won't be anybody walking in heaven saying, you know what, I ought to become a Christian, but you needed to explain something to me. A sovereign ruler doesn't have to explain anything. Part of it is because as the perfect sovereign of the universe, he, look, he's not, uh, uh, he doesn't have any questions that he needs to answer. And secondly, he's more intelligent than the rest of his creation. 
So that's why the Bible says as high as the heavens are above the earth, and it's high, uh, so are your ways higher than my ways and your thoughts higher than my thoughts. He doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't have to explain anything. C.S. Lewis, whom I'll quote uh, later on in this message, but he said, when we walk into heaven, we're not going to walk in saying, uh, where's the big man? I got some questions to ask him. We're going to probably fall down on our face and say, oh, now I see. So a sovereign doesn't owe any explanations. You may not like that, but that's one of the reasons he's sovereign. He's smarter than you are. I used to tell our daughter when she was 14 years old, and she would ride home and say, Dad, can I do this and everything? I'd say, no, ma'am, you can't do it. And she'd go, why, Daddy? Why can't I do that? And I, I, God gave me this. Parents, this will help you. God gave me this. Instead of just saying, because I said so, here's what I said. I've used that one many times too. But um, here's what I said to her. I'd look at her and say, you can't do that. Why not, Daddy? Why can't I do that? And I'll say, because I'm smarter than you are. And she would go, oh, Daddy. I said, no, it's really true. I'm smarter than you are. It may not always be that way, but right now I'm smarter than you. And so I know what's best for you, even if I can't explain why it's best for you. I was acting in my sovereign role as father. Now, by the way, my grandson, whom I've just been visiting, you know, came back this week. He has learned how to manipulate my sovereignty. <laughs> and he's talking now. And so this is what he says. Pops, pops, sit, pops, play, pops, sit, pops, play. And they've taught him manners. He has manners. He uses the word please. And so he looked at me several times over the last five days. And he said, pops, sit, pops, play. Please. And then if I didn't respond as fast as he wanted me to, he would go, Pops, I said please. <laughs> and then it's over. See, he's manipulated my sovereignty. And so anything he wanted. So it, the grandkids are exempt from this, but kids aren't. I mean, you're smarter than, and it, this is what God, it means to have a sovereign ruler like God in heaven. He says, look, I don't have to answer you. And there's some things you couldn't understand if I did. I'm sovereign. One day the Bible says we will know even as we're known. But he is a sovereign. Now, because he is a perfect sovereign rule, uh, ruler, we don't have to understand everything he has done in history or everything he has allowed the enemy to do in history. We don't have to, But one thing we need to understand is as a sovereign, Christ said, I am willingly coming into this world because I love you. I'm not being forced to do it. I'll tell you, I told you there were two things. Let me tell you a second thing that it is reflected in the sovereignty of God and of Christ. And that is that when Christ came into this world, he came with a mission. He came with a mission. Now, remember the passage in Philippians I just shared with you a moment ago? He said he didn't think it was a robbery to try to hang on to his royal throne. He didn't think it was robbery. Now, most of us said, hey, Here's, here's your mission. Go, go do this, but you've got to give up your royal position to go into the world of broken people, become like one of them without sinning, be perfect, but go among them and leave the throne. He had been at the throne uh, of God for all eternity past, but he had a mission. And the sovereignty of God is reflected in the mission. The mission, Jesus said it this way, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And the best way I could do that is to go among them so they could, I could identify, they could identify me. And in John 10, 10, Jesus said, here's my mission. The thief, that is 
uh, the devil himself comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Did you notice in our passage this morning, John says he, that, that he was life? And so that was his mission. And because of that mission, he came into the world. The fact is, Jesus coming to the earth was part of God's eternal sovereign plan. And he came uncoerced and he came on mission. And he came at just the right time. In Galatians 4, 4, it says, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let me just tell you something. Uh, scholars tell us that when Jesus was born, it was one of the darkest periods in all of history at that time. And it said, but it says this, and at the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. You know what that means? God had been working. Uh, by the way, Jesus coming into this world was not a panicked response by God. Uh-oh, man's messed up. What are we going to do? It was part of his pre-eternal sovereign plan. And so he sends the son into the world to do for the world what it can't do for himself, uh, it, itself. And he sends Christ in with this mission, the mission of redemption, so that you and I could understand who he is. And at the right time, God did it. God is always at work. So it wasn't like, oh no, quickly, get down there. It was, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. Now's the time. And at the fullness of time, when it was just right, maybe at the darkest hour of history at that time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born uh, uh, under the law, so that he could do the mission, carry out the mission. God's always at work. He's working behind the scenes. By the way, this has been an unusual year. We'd all agree with that. Probably going to continue to be unusual in the months ahead. But I want to tell you something. Listen, take heart because God is working. You may say, well, I don't see how he's working. He's sovereign. He doesn't have to explain how he's working. But don't, don't you uh, for a minute doubt that God is not working. God is working. God is working. God is working. God is working. In the fullness of time, his purposes will be accomplished and even manifest. He's always working. He's working behind the scenes in your life to bring about his royal purpose and to accomplish his mission. Christ's birth was not a, a knee-jerk reaction to man's problem. It wasn't God saying, we've got to come up with a plan and we've got to solve man's dilemma. No, it was a sovereign plan that God used to carry out and express his love and his purpose. Here's the second thing John speaks of. Not only does he speak of Jesus as sovereign God, he speaks of Jesus as the source God. Look at verse 3. Will you look at that? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not just sovereign God. He was a creator God. He was the source and is the source of all things that exist. And without him, nothing exists, and there is no existence. Paul reiterated it as he stood on Mars Hill in Athens among the philosophers or religious teachers of the day, and he said this, in Christ we live and move and we have our being. And if you'll notice in the passage there, in the beginning was the Word, and it says that the Word was with God, the Word was God, that the verb was is in what we call the imperfect tense. And it doesn't speak of something that just simply took place in the past and now is completed. So he's not saying in the beginning was the word. That happened. 
It took place and now it's completed. Here's what it means. The imperfect tense means it speaks of something that goes on and on and on and on. And so what John is saying is in the beginning, before there was any earth, before there was sun and moon and stars, before there was any creation, before there was any cosmos, he, he was there. Christ was there. He was beyond the confines of time. He was dwelling in the dimension where time does not count. You realize something, that the only place where time really makes a difference is in this life, in your life. Time is insignificant in the spiritual realm. That's why God is the same tomorrow as he was yesterday to us, but Time is irrelevant to God because God has existed and God continues to exist. And this process is on and on. It's not just like something happened. It's continuing to happen. God is still working and it's still, his processes are still going on regardless of what time. But I'll tell you, this reminds us that time is important because it's a thing that we measure the, the life that we have here and the choices that we make and the way we use our time and the eternal significance of our time. So we need time because we need, that's why Paul's in the fullness of time. At God's appointed time, Jesus came in the world where we recognize that time produces these parameters for us. But beyond this life, time has no relevance. And so... It's important for us to understand that, that Jesus, as the creator God, he was there at the very beginning, before time, before there were planets and suns and stars and universe. And that, that blows our mind, okay? This is where you say, uh, well, there are people who say this, well, you know, this is one of the, my problems in trusting in God because how did, you, you know, I believe we just kind of got here. We, we, by the way, in January, I'm going to begin a new series called Myths That Mislead Us mislead our faith. And one that we'll talk about in that series is how we got here and what we tend to be told, you know, but God was beyond. He was outside of creation. He was the creator. And people sometimes say things like this. Well, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe he existed. I believe we got here by a big bang. You know, you've heard that one, big bang. Scientists do not use a scientific method to arrive at creation. They can't because there is no scientific way. The methodology that you were taught in school, they don't apply those rules to creation because if they do, they can't arrive at, uh, at evolution and a big bang, by the way. But if you want, I, I've told some of them before, I believe in a big bang too. God said, let there be light and bang, it happened. You know? And I asked one one time, I need to not get into my series, but I asked one one time, I said this to, I said, well, so we're here as a product of, of a, an explosion in what? The universe, how the universe get here? Uh, an explosion, they said, well, the, these particles came together and bang, they, they exploded from that life. I, I said, who created the particles? See, there's a creator Somewhere, if you keep backing it up, if you say, okay, I'll give you the big bang. Who created the particles that came together that created the bang? You see, before time, as we know it, he existed. Brent Earls writes and says this, the stars are God's fingerprints. 
The sun is a mere smidgen of his radiance. The moon is to remind us that he doesn't sleep at night. The vastness of space proclaims the infinity of his wisdom, while the sand pebble indicates his thoroughness with the tiniest details. The lion hits it, uh, hints at his fearlessness, the bear at his power, the hawk at his keen insight. And yet those, those possess only a tidbit of God's omnipotence and his omnipresence. Every tree points toward heaven. Every bird has a song to sing. Even every moment of wind goes in some direction. There is nothing chaotic about a beautifully designed world. All creation has a message to tell. Its message is this. Listen, there is a God. There is a God. Jesus wasn't created. He was the creator in Colossians 1.17, Paul says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Listen, take a telescope, the most powerful one you can find, and you look out into the vastness of the universe. We're in the Milky Way galaxy, but they tell us there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of other galaxies out there. As far as the telescope will let you see, guess what? You're looking into the creation of God. The telescope. Or take, if you will, the microscope and look at things that the human eye, apart from the microscope, can't even see. Atoms, subatomic particles, now nanoparticles, and all of these sorts of things that, that exist. Use the telescope and look at the vastness of God's creation. Look at the microscope and look at the intricacies of God's creation. All of them testify that God is the creator. There was an intelligent designer behind all of that. I want to tell you something. Nature itself bears witness to the existence and the creation of your creator, Jesus Christ. I heard about a, um, a tribe of people that were reached many years ago on another continent. And when they reached them, these missionaries began to try to communicate. And one day they finally they finally were able to communicate with each other after a couple of years of trying to learn how each other talked. And, and they talked to this tribal chieftain. And they began to explain the gospel. He, he would finally and eventually come to Christ. But here's what he said. Listen to this. He said, Jesus is his name. Oh, we always knew he existed. We just didn't know his name. Well, that's a testimony of what Paul writes in Romans 1, where he says, nature testifies to the existence of God. By the way, quit worrying about people that have never heard the gospel like you have. God has made himself known to them. Don't worry about them. Paul says that nature testifies to the creator. You and I are fortunate because we have a, a real clear example. But we're also accountable for it too, aren't we? And so, so I, I want you to understand that he is the creator. He isn't just, Jesus, that's his name. We always knew he existed. We just didn't know what you call him. Christ is the creator. He's the source of all things, John says. He came to his creation to do something for them they couldn't do for themselves. And Paul wrote and said, he, he is before all things and he holds all things together. Colossians 1.17. Do you understand that? The, the universe, the vastness of it, you look at through the telescope I talked about or the microscope and the microscopic particles. He, he is the creator of all of those things. And you know what Paul said? He holds all things together. 
I don't know what you may think, but listen, if God in Christ didn't hold this universe together, it would fly off into smithereens. He's before all things, before creation. He was he existed. He existed at creation. He will exist when t- the clock has run out in this world. Why? Because he's before all things and he holds all things together. But there's one more thing I want you to see this morning. Not only is Jesus the sovereign God and is Jesus the source God, but John speaks of Jesus the Savior God. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome him. Christmas is a celebration of life. Jesus is a sovereign God. Jesus is the source God, the creator. But I want to tell you, and we praise God most of all because he is the Savior God. That's why Luke would write in his account and say, For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, most earthly kings expect their constituency to be willing to die for them, right? Now, now let that sink in for a moment. Would you agree with that statement? Most earthly kings, if the need arose, expects their constituent to die for them or for their kingdom. Agreed? I heard a story, a funny story about a king who had heart trouble, and the people loved this king. He was a beloved king, and they, they loved him. And, and um, they were all gathered in a, a big a square outside, hundreds of people outside the, the palace of the king and, and, uh, and, and waiting for a report would the king live. They, they loved this king. And one of the king's representatives came out on this little portico area and he says, I have a message for the people. And they all, everything got real silent. They began to listen to him. And he says, the king's heart will not last. The king is going to have to have a heart transplant. Who will give their heart for the king? And people began to scream, I will. My heart for the king. My heart for the king. Hundreds of people in that that crowd. My heart for the king. My heart for the king. My heart for the king. All through the crowd it was echoing. My heart through the king. And they were overwhelmed. And so the representative says, I don't don't know how to pick. And he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. From this, this balcony portico, he says, I'll take this feather. And I'll set it into the wind, and whoever the feather rests upon can then have the honor of giving their heart for the king. And so he dropped the feather. It began to float. The wind was carrying it around. It began to float toward the crowd, and the people were still screaming, my heart for the king, my heart for the king. And as the feather got lower, you begin to see him saying, my heart for the king. (laughs) My heart for the king. (laughs) My heart for the king. (laughs) You see, most earthly rulers say the constituents have to die for the king of the kingdom. Let me tell you what makes Christmas so remarkable. Our king came into the world to say, I don't want you to die for me. I'll die for you. Wow, that ought to get an amen, amen? I mean, you don't have to die for me. I'll die for you. Jesus reversed the earthly processes And he did it because of love. The sovereign king said, I will come into your world 
I'll give my heart, I'll give my blood for you. I'll die for my constituents. And that's why Jesus would say in this same book, John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I give it willingly. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. I've received that from my father. He's pointing back to his sovereignty, isn't he? He says, you don't take it from me. I I, I choose to lay it down. There was a television reporter, journalist, interviewer in Tokyo, and and it was Christmas season. And I read about this where she was going out doing like man-on-the-street interviews, and they were asking the question of people on the street, uh, what does Christmas mean? What does Christmas mean? And, you know, years ago you could ask that question, and everybody would have at least known the answer. That's no longer true anymore. And she's walking up to people, and she walks up to this young lady, and she says, hey, we're doing interviews. Could we ask you the question? We're asking others. The lady said, sure, and she said, okay, what is the meaning of Christmas? There was a long pause, and the young woman looked back and said, I think Christmas, isn't that the day where Jesus died? Well, you know, there was some truth in her answer. There was truth in her answer because the fact is, Christ was born to die. Now, I don't know who said it, but they were right on when they said it. They said, Christmas is the promise, and Easter is the proof. Christmas is the promise. Easter is the proof. This is John's Christmas story. It is theologically correct. It is practically relevant, and it is personally essential. We have a Christmas carol that goes like this, what child is this? What child is this? You've heard that before, haven't you? What child is this? What child is this? There's no greater question that any of us could answer than what child is this? Who is this Christ? And listen, if you answer it wrong, all else will be wrong for eternity. Your eternal destiny hangs on the answer to that question. So let me tell you what child this is. This child is the sovereign God. This child is the source God. He is the creator, and he is your creator. This this child, dear friend, is the Savior God. He is the Savior God. In 1988, Anissa Ayala was a 16-year-old young lady, and she had been diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. And the doctor said to her that if she didn't receive a bone marrow transplant after her chemotherapy and her radiation, that would be just a matter of time. That would prolong it, but there would be just a matter of time until she, she would die. And neither of her parents were a match, nor was her brother. And they couldn't find anybody in their web of relationships that was a match, and time was running out. The parents in their 40s decided to try to conceive another child. Maybe, just maybe, on the long shot, they could birth a child that would be a match. And lo and behold, they did. Uh, Marissa was the infant's name, and she was a perfect match. And at 14 months old, they took some of Marissa's marrow 
and they exchanged it with Anissa's marrow. And I'm pleased to tell you that they, it, it, not only did Anissa make a full recovery, but she's perfectly healthy, and both of those sisters are alive today. You see, in a very real sense, Marissa saved her sister's life. In fact, in the interview, she said this, without me being a perfect match for my sister, my sister wouldn't be here. Jesus was a perfect match. His blood was a perfect match. And Jesus came into this world expressly to save us. And without him, we have no life. And were it not for him, we'd have no hope. He is the one and only Savior. And he is the one and only Savior that saves all of those who will put their trust in him. Christmas marks the day that we celebrate his birth. Because without his birth, we'd have no salvation. But here's what I close with. Look at verses 11 and 12. We didn't read these, but I want you to see these. I saved these for the ending. After John has told us about Christ coming into the world, that he was God, that he was the creator, that he was the Savior, he then, he then says this in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Wow. You know what that is? That's a Christmas tragedy. And there's still people like that today, that he, he cries out and he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. I, I came into this world to, to save you. And his own rejects him. You say, who is his own? His own is his own creation. Remember, he's the creator, the source God. He created, he created all of us. He created everyone, those who have received him and those who have rejected him. The Christmas tragedy is that the creation, his creation by and large, rejected the very reason he came into the world. And so in so doing, rejected him. Now, I got a lot of thoughts in my head, but you can't, you can't see my thoughts. So how do you know what I'm thinking? By the words that I speak. Do you know that's what God did? The Logos? God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. All of this I have, but I've got to find a way to express it to you. And I did so through my word, Jesus Christ. So that when you see him, you know how much I love you. When you see him, you know who I am. He was the expression, Jesus was, of God's word so that we might understand God's thoughts toward us. C.S. Lewis, a great literary genius, he's been quoted many times talking about Jesus, but let me share one of the things that I most appreciated that he said. He said, I, I, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about Jesus. I'm ready to, you know, things like I, I'm ready to accept Jesus Christ as a great teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And, and Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely, listen to this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher 
to say what Jesus said, if it wasn't true, he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be a, a, a devil from hell. He goes on further to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. Further, you can show him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon, or else you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But catch this. But let none of us come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Those are good words, aren't they? What he's saying is this. Christ is one of three things. He's either a liar if he said all that he said and it wasn't true, or he is a lunatic because only a lunatic would die for something that wasn't true, or he is who he said he was. He is the Lord of all creation, and he is the Savior of humanity, and those are the options before us with Christ. The good news is the Word of God and the Word of God at Christmas remind us that He is the Lord God, the Savior God. And if we understand that, at some point in our life, it calls for a response. You see, Christmas is not about a sentimental story of how a child was humbly born in a manger. I, I like the story. I like the nativity and all of that. But listen, don't stop there. Christmas is not about this sentimental uh, baby, humbly born. It's not, it is about the king of creation who was born to die. And who's born to die for you and for me. You see, the shadow, when you look at the manger, don't miss the shadow of the cross stretched before it. Don't miss the fact that when that child came into the world, he was on a mission that would take him to a cross. And that leads, you know, I said there were two things. There was the Christmas tragedy. There's the Christmas transformation. That's what the manger and the cross led to, our transformation. Those who recognize and receive the Savior as Lord. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Wow. That's John's Christmas story. That God came into this world to transform us. And that transforming process demands a response from us. But as many as received him, did you catch that? To them... He came into his own, and his own received him not. His creation, by and large, rejecting him. But to those who received him, who believed in his name, and that word there means more than just believed right here, but they went beyond just believing that Jesus is the Son of God. They received him into their soul. They exchanged their life. They exchanged their soul for his salvation. That's a Christmas story. My question to you as I, as I finish is this. 
have you received the Savior, not just believed in your head? A lot of people in our world today will still talk about Jesus at at Christmas, but they kind of talk about him in a general sense, you know? He exists, I believe, right here, but they've never done anything with Jesus right here. And you know, you can be theologically correct about God in every way and be eternally lost in your soul because you haven't taken what you know and let it transform your soul. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? No one looking about in this place. I want to invite you this morning, if you've never put your trust in him or you're not sure you've put your trust in him, to do it right now. If you're watching us by live stream, same thing for you. And how do you do that? Well, you can utter a prayer to God from your heart to him that goes something like this. Lord Jesus, I have believed in my head for a long time, but I've never trusted you with my soul and my eternity. Or I'm not sure that I've ever tried, but I want to be certain. And so right now, I invite you to come into my life to forgive me of my sin and to be my Savior. Thank you for loving me and dying for me, and I accept you. Begin your transforming process in my soul. Be my Lord, my Master, forever. Maybe you're here in this place this morning and you say, I, I did that many years ago. Why don't you just do something? Why don't you just call on him this way and say, Lord, I thank you that I received you and you saved me. I praise you for that. And Christmas reminds me of how much you love me. I love you too. And I thank you for your grace given to me. Father, hear our prayers now. We love you. Father, for those who've called out to you, whether on live stream or in this live audience, Father, I pray and thank you that you hear their prayers because you've already told us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I thank you that I called on you many years ago. I thank you that you heard my prayer. You saved my soul. I thank you for those today who have entered the kingdom because they've trusted you. Would you help them as they begin this new journey of faith and transformation? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you look this way for a moment before we're gone? I'll say several things to you. Those of you who are joining us by live stream, those of you who are in this live audience, if you made a decision today, maybe you called on Christ to be your Savior. Would you do something? If you're in the live audience, you can take the tear-off panel in your worship folder and you can just indicate that, today I received Christ as my Savior. You can drop that in the offering basket. You can take that to our Welcome Center when this service is over and I hope you'll do that. Uh, If you're on live stream, just text this word to us, Pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, to the number 334-384-8080. should be on your screen in front of you, but you prayed that prayer to trust Christ. Would you just text that word, Pastor, to that number on your screen? You, you can do that, by the way, in the live audience. You can text us uh, as well. Maybe you say, well, you know what? I, I, I'm going to be going back to church at some point in time, and, and because of that, I, I want to be a member. This is the congregation I want to be a member of. I want to invite you to do 
literally, this is not an exaggeration, what scores and scores and scores and scores and scores of people have done over the last several months, and that is say, I want to I become a member of the Ridgecrest family. If you need a church home, and by the way, you say, I'll be back at some point, but I need to connect, that's, that's what we'd love to invite you to do. How do you do that? In this live audience, you can check it on the blank or you can, you can text us just like our live stream audience can text us. You can text this word, join, real complicated. Join, J-O-I-N, 334-384-8080. We'll take it from there. We know what to do and we invite you to connect with us. You're gonna need a church home and family when you, when you begin to, to venture back out to worship and we'd love for this to be that family so i invite you to join with us to connect with us all of you here if you haven't joined us why don't you connect with us look i'm a little bit prejudiced i'll admit but i think if you're going to pick a church this is the one you ought to pick and so i want to invite you to do that